ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, Brazil begins a new era. On New Year's Day, Jair Bolsonaro officially takes over as president of Brazil. He won the election this past October over Fernando Haddad of the left-wing Workers' Party. Bolsonaro ran as a far-right candidate. He was long known for making incendiary statements, including misogynistic and homophobic slurs. During the election campaign, he vowed to rid Brazil of violent crime and political corruption, even if that meant abandoning democratic norms. If one of us, civilian or soldier, is assaulted, if he shoots the attacker 20 times, it serves them right. He must be decorated, not judged. Now that Bolsonaro is about to begin his term in office, we thought this would be a good time to replay the episode from the week of the election in October. Our guest is Brian Winter, editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly. Until recently, Winter lived in Rio, covering Latin American politics for Reuters. So... You're among few Americans who's actually spent time with Jair Bolsonaro. When did you start paying attention to him? I lived in Brazil from 2010 to 2015, and that was a time when, I mean, it seems like a completely different Brazil from the one we're looking at right now. It was a country where most people would kind of politely describe themselves as center-left or left. You didn't really have a right wing that was vocal and visible. But that really started to change around 2014, toward the end of my time living in Brazil, when the economy started to collapse and when you saw the beginnings of this corruption scandal called car wash that evolved into what the U.S. Department of Justice now calls the biggest foreign bribery case ever detected. And for me, when I, when I really detected that things were starting to change was actually in late 2015, I was traveling in the Amazon on a reporting trip near a city called Belém do Pará. And there was a shootout there on the highway with some prison escapees. And it was actually, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but it, it was really close. I mean, the car that I was in, the driver threw it into reverse and started speeding backwards on the highway. I mean, that's that's how close this was. And we all, hundreds of us, ended up trapped there on that highway for hours, actually, while the police searched for the guys who had broken out of jail and in doing so killed three passersby who were in their car on the highway. And I was in this crowd of people, and it got very 
angry. And people were saying things like, you know, basically, oh, the, you know, these criminals and they're just the same as the politicians back in Brasilia. All the money gets stolen and the police aren't allowed to do anything. So they're never going to catch these guys. And for me, it was proof kind of firsthand in really dramatic circumstances of of how this country was changing. The The tone was so different from the Brazil that I first got to know at the early part of the decade, which was the hopeful Brazil, not only left-leaning in, in many ways, but also this was the Brazil where they were going to host the Olympics and the World Cup, and there had been this economic boom, and they had this president, uh, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who left office with a 90% approval rating. I mean, it was a place where optimism was just kind of bubbling out. And, and it occurred to me that day on the highway that, that the mood had radically changed. And out of that emerged Jair Bolsonaro, who was a guy who had been present in Brazilian politics for a very long time, but very much a fringe figure. He was in Congress since 1991. He, he represented kind of military people who felt like they were underpaid and had certain grievances in the wake of Brazil's 1964 to 85 dictatorship. But as time went by over these last couple of years, he tapped into this rage in Brazilian society over crime and corruption and then the economy, because the country uh, has been in its worst economic crisis in at least 100 years, maybe longer. And and what previously kind of got him relegated to the sidelines with these insults and this, you know, all of the controversial things he said, ended up convincing people that maybe he was different and that maybe he was the guy to go change politics in Brasilia, which is a tale that should sound very familiar to many Americans. The story of being in the middle of this shootout is pretty dramatic. And it speaks to some of the statistics we've seen of how many Brazilians have been very, very close to major crime. Not petty crime, but but actually shootings and shootouts. And, and I'm curious if you started to see fear of personal safety start to invade also the spaces that you were interacting in socially. Look, during the five years that I lived in Brazil, I lived behind nine-foot-high security walls with razor on top razor wire on top, and I walked out of a double security gate every time I left the house. And I was lucky. Most Brazilians, the overwhelming majority of Brazilians, faced far greater risks than I ever did in my day-to-day life. It's a country where in the 33 years since democracy returned, successive governments have failed to address this security challenge. It's a country with more than 63,000 homicides per year and rising. Statistically, it's one of the most unsafe countries in the world. And unfortunately, these politicians who've run Brazil for the last few decades just didn't take the crime issue seriously enough at a federal level. Uh, Brazilian politicians up until very recently would have kind of dismissively told you that crime is an issue that is handled at the state level in Brazil. And, you know, that always struck me as a bit half-baked because it would be one thing if crime was just an issue in a few Brazilian states, but it is really a nationwide problem. 
And again, Bolsonaro has captured a lot of support because he's the one saying that he's going to take this issue seriously and give the police the tools he says are necessary in order for them to succeed. Now, most independent experts would tell you that his policies won't work and may actually make the crime problem even worse. But, you know, I guess we're going to find that out if he gets elected. So you mentioned earlier some of his inflammatory rhetoric, but it's it's more than inflammatory. I mean, it seems not an exaggeration to call it racist, misogynist, um, violent at times or suggestions of violence. Can you narrate for us some of the more extreme statements that he's made? There's a whole list of statements like this from Jair Bolsonaro. He said, I would be incapable of loving a homosexual son. I'd prefer he die in an accident. He has said on the floor of Congress to a fellow legislator, I won't rape you because you don't deserve it. He has said a policeman who doesn't kill is not a policeman. He has said that the biggest mistake of Brazil's previous military dictatorship was that it tortured 30,000 people instead of killing them. Um, And it's true. I mean, these are more than just inflammatory statements. These are a worldview. And they reflect why so many people in civil society and also people who are worried about things like democracy and institutions are are so concerned about his rise. But let's unpack even just the, the comments on dictatorship and torture. Is his support largely coming from people who are too young to remember the dictatorship? How does a society that was under dictatorship for decades come to support someone promoting the idea of going back to authoritarianism? Well, it's very interesting that Bolsonaro's support is strongest among the youngest demographics in Brazilian society. It's actually people aged 18 to 24 who tend to be most enthusiastic about him and vote for him in the highest number. That was especially true during the early days of his campaign. Now his support has become quite a bit broader as he comes within range of winning. But yeah, no, I mean, it's clear that the people with the best memory of what dictatorship was actually like tend to have the biggest doubts about what his presidency would look like. Because, you know, the military dictatorship in Brazil was not only repressive, not only did it curtail democratic freedoms like freedom of expression, um, but it was also not a great time economically. It had a period of intense economic growth that was known as the Brazilian miracle, where GDP often grew more than 10% a year, which, to be clear, is a lot. But at the same time, real wages for most workers actually fell during that period. And the reason the dictatorship eventually ended in 1985 was not just because the Cold War was coming to a close, but it was under the weight of its own economic mistakes, namely out-of-control inflation and a very high debt. You've written that you actually spent time with Bolsonaro and his family. What was it like? I mean, what was it like to sit with him? Did did you meet his sons? I mean, where did you go? What what kind of space were you in? Yeah, I mean, I've met the family on a couple different occasions. And I've also observed him quite a lot over these last two years as it became clear that he was adopting some of Donald Trump's tactics in a country where, of course, the problems have been much worse than they ever were in the United States. And so the message of, you know, drain the swamp basically had tons of appeal. One thing I'll say about Jair Bolsonaro is that he knows how to read a room. 
um, which is to say that he is capable of modulating his message depending on whether he's speaking to a rally of true believers or whether he's speaking in a debate or whether he's speaking to a group of business leaders as he did here in New York. And and one example of this was when he was asked about one of his stronger, more offensive comments, he uh, his statement that he wouldn't, you know, he, a fellow legislator didn't deserve to be raped by him, he showed some contrition. He kind of looked down and he said, I sometimes lose my way with words and uh, and I'm sorry. This was misleading because at the same time, Bolsonaro has spent the last several years in front of other audiences bragging about that comment and repeating it. But it shows you that he's clever in a way. I mean, I, I do believe he's he's actually quite smart, uh, a notion that many in the Brazilian elite would laugh at. But he, you know, he's gotten to this point with no real funding to speak of, no corporate support, no party, really. It's been his ability to kind of read the moment and say things that will appeal to different constituencies in Brazil that has put him on the cusp of the presidency. What's it like to be at a Bolsonaro rally? I mean, is it violent? Are people aggressive? Are they chanting? What happens? The tone of the Bolsonaro rallies has generally been patriotic, confrontational and anti-establishment, but inclusive. Um, They're happy. And in some ways, that's reflective of Brazil, right? I mean, Brazilian rallies almost always have kind of a a party feel to them. But it's also, you know, perhaps Bolsonaro rallies more than most. And he's been able to kind of enshroud himself in the colors of the Brazilian flag and bring a message of change and optimism at a really miserable time in the country's history, uh, at a time when wages have been falling and unemployment is upwards of 13%, and people feel like they've been waiting forever now for an economic recovery, and it just hasn't materialized. And what he's been able to do is convince people that there are easy solutions to these problems. Hey, we'll fix the economy by putting all these corrupt politicians in jail. Hey, we'll fix crime by letting all of you law-abiding citizens have a gun. And again, the wisdom of these policies can be deeply questioned, but at least for the moment, the Brazilian body politic appears to have bought into a lot of these ideas. So he's often called the Brazilian Trump. Is that fair? Is that a good comparison? I think it is fair in a lot of ways because he he has tapped into that same anti-establishment vibe. Uh, He has also appealed to nostalgia, just as Donald Trump's Make America Great Again slogan appeals to a certain kind of nostalgia for the 1950s in the United States. Bolsonaro has openly touted this military dictatorship as a golden era in Brazilian history. As a matter of fact, he has even... This is a classic case of, of gaslighting. He has shed doubt on whether it was even a dictatorship at all. Maybe in his, he says, it was legitimately elected. And, you know, the nostalgia for that period stems from the belief held by some Brazilians that it was a time when politicians were less corrupt and when crime was a lot lower. Do you think his primary appeal then is crime or corruption or it's a combination of the two? Bolsonaro's primary appeal is his message of law and order, and he has cleverly paired 
rhetoric against both corruption and street crime under that umbrella. And he has, um, credibly, I might add, uh, touted himself as one of the cleanest politicians in Brazil. And as an aside here, it is generally agreed that his record is quite clean when you consider that most other national politicians have been implicated in one scandal or another in recent years. Bolsonaro can credibly claim to being relatively untainted by that. He has convinced people that he'd be a champion of clean government as well. It's interesting that there hasn't been, or at least there doesn't seem to be, um, a sort of Le Pen effect, by which I mean a rallying by disparate parts of the left and center against him, unless I'm wrong. Has there been a movement to say this doesn't represent the democratic trajectory Brazil has been on since the dictatorship, or does Brazil not you know, coalesce in that way? There has been an attempt to put together a so-called democratic coalition of moderates in order to oppose Bolsonaro and the runoff, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And there's two reasons. One is that the candidate who made it into the runoff against Bolsonaro, uh, Fernando Adagi of the Workers' Party, has his own baggage. And it's not even really his baggage. It's the party's baggage. This is the leftist party that governed Brazil from 2003 to 2016 and has its sort of historic leader, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, in jail right now on corruption charges. It is a party that generally stuck to the rules of institutional democracy during its time in power, but also led the country into its biggest recession ever and, you know, has some question marks when it comes to its own commitment to democracy. One specific example is that Haddad has talked about uh, the idea of seeking a rebalancing of the three branches of government if he's elected. And most people interpret that as a sign or a gesture that they would kind of go after the judicial sector if he gets elected, uh, believing that they've accumulated too much power. And that's why Lula's in jail. And so, you know, some of the people who might otherwise join a Democratic front look askance at the Workers' Party and at Haddad and ask themselves, are they really committed to democracy? Uh, The second problem that Haddad and the pro-democracy crowd has had in Brazil is that democracy itself has sadly gained a bad name. Um, The Pew Research Center does an annual poll where they ask people how they feel about institutional representative democracy. And in the latest poll, just 8% of Brazilians said they thought it was very good. That was the lowest of all 38 countries surveyed. And, you know, again, unfortunately, democracy for many Brazilians has become a synonym of chaos, of leniency for criminals. And again, that's why Bolsonaro's outsider status has been so appealing to so many people is because Brazilians kind of collectively threw up their hands and said everything that is there in Brasilia is rotten and we need somebody new. For a long time during the campaign, really until these last few weeks, Bolsonaro's support was very concentrated in the most educated most affluent members of Brazilian society who tended to be the ones who worry the most about crime uh, and who were the most offended by the corruption scandals of recent years. But over these last two months or so, his support, Bolsonaro's support, has expanded beyond that original base and has grown to include a vast constellation of people in Brazil who are both Uh, worried about their own personal security, and also, and this is critical, 
uh, opposed the return of the Workers' Party, the leftist party that governed Brazil for 13 years. I mean, what you find is, is and you know, you saw this in the U.S. election too, but, but people who are holding their nose and voting for Bolsonaro despite his rhetoric, despite some of his more extreme positions, because he represents, in their mind, the lesser of two evils. They would rather roll the dice with somebody like Bolsonaro than face a return to the policies that um, that ended in the economic collapse and one of the biggest corruption scandals ever detected anywhere. Even despite his rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, you find people who think that Bolsonaro can be contained, um, and they point to Trump. They say, look, I mean, you had this guy who, you know, elites were scared of and who people warned about being a fascist and anti-democratic, and these people say, look, things haven't turned out so badly in the United States. I don't personally believe that most Brazilians share his views on on LGBT people, for example. I mean, Brazil in many respects remains a quite progressive place. But I do think that he captured people's anger with their politicians. And again, the feeling that they have been neglected and sold out by their politicians. Brazil has some of the highest taxes in all of Latin America. It's an incredibly high tax load, and people get very little in return. this is a country where you know many people or most people, if they could, uh, pay for private schools and drive on private roads. And there's just this enormous frustration with the political class that the promises that they made during the 2000s when things seemed to be going really well for Brazil ha- have now fallen short. Uh, yeah, I was there in Brazil a couple weeks ago during the week when his support boomed. In the course of one week, it went from about 28% of voters to uh, the 46% that he won in the first round uh, on October 7th. And that really happened in the course of about seven to 10 days. And you could feel it. Being in Sao Paulo and Rio, you could feel people deciding that he was the one not only because they decided that they'd had enough with the political class in Brasilia, but also because they thought that he was the strongest figure to get rid of the Workers' Party and, and you know, diffuse the quote-unquote threat of them coming back into power. What about religious voters, evangelicals, Catholics? Another imp- critical part of the Bolsonaro story is the rise of evangelicals. Uh, this Brazil a generation ago was overwhelmingly... Catholic. And now, if I'm not mistaken, about a third of the country is evangelical. And they have wholeheartedly embraced Bolsonaro really since the beginning, even though it's it's worth noting Bolsonaro himself is Catholic. Um, but for them, they see values that they can get behind. They see his, you know, the fact that he talks about God, um, the fact that he wants to uh, support Israel. They see all of these things as signs of a kindred spirit, and so they've been one of the most enthusiastic demographics in terms of their support. If he wins on October 28th, how will it change Brazil? What will happen right away? My personal belief is that if Bolsonaro is elected with a strong mandate, uh, which all the polls indicate he will be, that he will have tremendous power to mold the country in his image. He'll have a a fairly conservative Congress. 
Uh, he'll also, and this was a surprise for a lot of us, his block of supporters in Congress will also be um, quite strong. And so, you know, I think that on the security side, I, he will order the armed forces and the police to go out and um, basically bust some heads. There are people comparing what he plans to do with what Rodrigo Duterte has done in the Philippines. Uh, it's worth noting that Brazil is already a country where the police kill more than 5,000 people every year. It's, I think, completely probable that that number will increase, at least in the short term, under Bolsonaro, precisely because of what he has said he wants police to be able to do. We've already seen an increase in killings and violence involving uh, various minority groups in Brazil, political violence also, and it's reasonable to think that that will increase in the short term. But again, the polls show this is what most Brazilians want. On the economy, Bolsonaro has said that he will uh, pass a uh, pension reform, um, which virtually every economist agrees is necessary in order to re rebalance the country's uh, books, which are severely out of whack at the moment. Uh, I think on foreign policy, I think you'll see an extremely strong alliance with the Trump administration on issues like Venezuela, uh, Israel. Um, Bolsonaro has said that he'll pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, I think it'll be you know, a, a very strong ally of of Washington. And then as far as, you know, democratic rules of the game, we'll see. I mean, many of us have warned that Bolsonaro will trample these rules, but and we'll see. One of the unexpected consequences of this better than expected performance by his allies in Congress Maybe that he he may not have to trample uh, democratic rules of the game if he has this strong group of supporters in Congress. If they're on his side, then Bolsonaro and Congress might get along just fine. Um, so so we'll see. I mean, he, this is an area where he has changed his rhetoric somewhat as the election has drawn closer. He has said said that he will be a quote unquote slave to Brazil's 1988. Uh, constitution, which is quite progressive, and has said that he'll respect an independent judiciary, freedom of the press, and so on. Before we stop, I, you know, I was thinking about what you said at the beginning about how you lived behind a major wall with a big gate. When you got to Brazil, did people say to you, this is how you'll live? Did you know that before you got there? Was that something that you looked into? How did you end up living like that? We always knew living in Brazil that there were certain risks involved. What was amazing during the five years I lived there was to see them, kind of the geography of those risks and the tragedies that we saw over time. I was very close to being killed in this highway ambush that I lived through in the Amazon in 2015. Three people, a couple cars ahead of me were shot dead during this prison escape. But there was more than just that. There was also, <laughs> my mom came to visit me uh, after two years of trying to convince her that Brazil was safe enough to come. And believe it or not, the morning that she arrived, a man walked out of a bank with a suitcase full of cash, was walking down the sidewalk in front of my kid's school and was shot dead 
there on the street in front of my kid's school. There was another spot in our neighborhood where another person was shot dead during a robbery. And I go back there even now and walk through my old neighborhood and I see those things. I mean, I I remember those things. And it's amazing how personal safety is such a present part of Brazilian life in 2018. And I think this is what, you know, so many people are desperate for any kind of solution that they're willing to accept a savior who says that it's going to be as easy as giving people more guns for themselves and turning the police loose to do what they want. Again, we know that's not the case. I mean, things like community policing in in places like Sao Paulo, actually, where, believe it or not, after everything I've just said, crime has actually, homicide in particular, has fallen 80% in Sao Paulo over the last um, decade and a half under very different policies from the ones that Bolsonaro is espousing. But in most of the rest of Brazil, and including in Sao Paulo, again, where where life remains very violent, you know, living there and and feeling that insecurity on a day-to-day basis, uh, I do understand why so many people are, are willing to cast their lot with Bolsonaro. Well, Brian Winter, thank you for sharing your Brazil insights. Thank you. That's Brian Winter, Editor-in-Chief of America's Quarterly, speaking to us back in October. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, Tai Chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com (laughs) 